0: Good morning, Luke. Are you ready?
1: No. I'm sleepy.
0: Well, wake up. We have work to do.
1: <clears throat> okay.
0: Well, in the last session, you said something about associating desire to a third system in the brain. We've looked at associating it with motivation, the system we use. We looked at associating it with pleasure. Then, in the last episode, you spoke about associating desire with the reward learning
1: system. Uh, Well, um, not me, actually. Tim Schroeder proposed that theory. He's the guy who wrote the article on the subject in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and the book Three Faces of Desire. Well, then, what is this theory? Okay, in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article, Tim Schroeder expressed it this way. Quote, For an organism to desire P is for it to use representations of P to drive reward-based learning. There's a lot to explain about that, but I think a good way to think about this is to think about teaching a dog a trick you have the dog do the trick and then you reward the dog and at first the dog performs the trick because the dog wants the reward but sooner or later the dog is performing the trick without any reward and the same applies with housebreaking a pet punishing the pet in order to stop certain behaviors. Now, the reward has to be something the dog wants, or in the case of punishment, the punishment has to be something that the dog wants to avoid. So, ultimately, a reward-based theory of desire says that to desire something is to have it serve as a reward, and to be averse to something is to have it serve as a punishment.
0: Okay, so, our desires are like the rewards and punishments
1: used to housebreak a pet? Well, you know how you have always talked about how rewards and punishments are methods that we use to mold the desires of others? You know, that some desires are malleable, and with rewards such as praise and punishments such as condemnation, we can strengthen some desires and inhibit others? Well, I probably said something like that once or twice. (laughs) Per day, maybe. Well, Schroeder gives a short description of how this system works in the brain quote, when an organism like us is rewarded by, say, being given a bicycle, the first thing that happens in its brain is that it represents being given a bicycle. This representation causes activity elsewhere in the brain that categorizes the represented event as a reward. Meanwhile, other brain structures have been attempting to predict the rewards and punishments the organism was going to receive at this moment. The combination of current reward information and predicted reward information is used by the brain to calculate the difference between the rewards that had previously been predicted and the rewards that have actually materialized. The result is released to the rest of the brain in the form of a very specific signal, one causing a very specific form of learning. This signal has effects upon the short-term operation of the brain and upon the long-term dispositions effects that, in organisms like us, affect our feelings and modify our dispositions to act, think, and experience, all in ways that tend to increase the acquisition of rewards and the avoidance of punishments.
0: Meaning that if we get something that we want, such as a bicycle or an award or praise, this causes a set of changes in the brain that, in the end, tends to cause us to be more strongly disposed to act in those ways that brought about the reward. Yeah similarly when we experience something we do not want Mm -hmm. such as an electric shock nausea or condemnation this causes a change in the brain that disposes us to be less strongly disposed to act in ways that bring about that Mm -hmm. which we don't
1: like yeah right that's what schroeder is saying
0: but okay i want to call attention to the fact that schroeder's quote a very specific form of learning unquote isn't about learning facts like learning the capitals of the states it's Learning, as Schroeder says, that alters our long-term dispositions.
1: Right. And actually, there's something about the reward learning system that might not fit with what you've been saying before, Alonzo. Research shows that a fully predicted reward has no effect on learning. Here, let me quote the Scholarpedia article on reward signals. Quote, The response to reward appears to code the discrepancy between the reward and predicted reward such that an unpredicted reward elicits an activation, a fully predicted reward elicits no response, and the omission of a predicted reward induces a depression, Now, Alonzo, I don't think you've accounted for that fact anywhere in your theory so far. You have rewards and punishments producing changes in behavior, but I've never heard you say anything about the actual reward needing to be different from the predicted reward in order to produce such a change in our dispositions to act as encoded in the brain.
0: Oh, well, no,
1: I haven't. Well, then there's something new for you to consider.
0: I am wondering if we can pause for just a moment. I'm beginning to sense that we're using reward and punishment in two different ways, and I'm starting to get concerned that this is going to trip us up. Okay. Well, typically, when people talk about reward and punishment, this assumes some sort of approval and disapproval. A reward in this sense might be an award for something done well. A punishment might be something like being sent to jail. But reward and punishment in the biological sense doesn't come with these ideas attached. A biological reward, getting food, for example, doesn't contain any sense of approval. A biological punishment, an electric
1: shock, doesn't imply disapproval. Okay, but the way most people talk and the way scientists talk about reward and punishment do seem somewhat related.
0: Well, actually, I'd argue that what we do is take what scientists call rewards and punishments and simply add this element of approval and disapproval. Okay. A full discussion of that would take us off track, but I think it's important to note that when we talk about reward and punishment here, we're talking about a sense that does not include expressions of approval or disapproval. These are biological rewards and punishments.
1: Okay, fair enough. Now that we've gone through some of the basics of the reward learning system in the brain, we can talk about Schroeder's reward-based theory of desire. And remember, Schroeder claimed that when we say that an agent desires that P, that means that P serves as a reward for the agent in reward-based learning.
0: So let me get this straight. You're not just saying that what is desired also tends to serve as a reward in reward-based learning. Instead, what is desired and what serves as a reward in reward-based learning are the same things.
1: That's right. Remember what Schroeder said, quote, for an organism to desire P is for it to use representations of P to drive reward-based learning. I disagree. Alonzo? Uh,
0: but I'm not going to argue over definitions. Oh, good. Still, we should go through his theory so that we can figure out how to translate between his language and ours Mm -hmm. and to see whether we disagree on any of the facts of the matter.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Now, we already found one point of disagreement. You didn't have a place in your theory for fully predicted rewards having no effect.
0: Well, we don't disagree. I was wrong. I took a glance at the research and saw the opinions of experts in the field, and, well, my previous assumptions did not match our current scientific understanding of the subject. It's interesting. I'm going to have to get some thought to what that implies. Hmm. But let's find out what else Schroeder says about desires and see if we can find anything else interesting.
1: Luckily, Schroeder was kind enough to provide us with a list of propositions for his theory, much like we did in the first episode of this season. So let's look through them and see where you and he might disagree and why. Here is Schroeder's first claim. Claim number one. Intrinsic desires, wants, and wishes form a natural grouping closely related to one another but distinguished from other pro-attitudes such as trying or intending.
0: Okay, we're trying to get past language issues, so instead of arguing definitions, let's just figure out how to translate between what Schroeder is saying Mm -hmm. and what we're saying. Mm -hmm. What Schroeder calls intrinsic desires, we call desires as ends, to distinguish them from what an agent desires as a means. We discussed Schroeder's claim about trying in episode 12, where I argued that to try means to succeed if one can, Mm -hmm. which is an action-based definition. As for intending, belief-desire theory holds that beliefs and desires as ends either constitute or create intentions. Either way, intentions will end up being distinct from desires as ends by themselves. So, I think I agree with his claim when it's translated to the way I'm using these words, which is fine.
1: Okay, let's continue. Claim number two, intrinsic desires may be distinguished from instrumental ones
0: desiring something as an end is not the same as desiring something as a means to an end. And we see both types of desires working in the real world.
1: Right. Okay. Schroeder's third claim. Claim number three, all desires are desires that P, P standing for some proposition.
0: Oh yeah, I think that's true. That's our claim that desires like beliefs are propositional
1: attitudes. So no real disagreements yet? Nope. Only differences in language. All right, let's keep going. Claim number four, one can, in principle, intrinsically desire that P for any state of affairs P one can perceptually or cognitively represent.
0: Yeah, yeah. The way I've always said it is that the range of propositions that an agent can seek to make or keep true is about equal to the range of propositions an agent can believe. Mm -hmm. At least there's no prima facie reason to believe that they're significantly different. An agent who can believe that the moon Pandora can continue to exist can desire that
1: the moon Pandora continue to exist. All right, next one. Claim number five. A thing is a reward or punishment only if it is wanted or unwanted, respectively, by the recipient.
0: Hmm. Something that an agent does not want cannot serve as a reward, and something that an agent does not want to avoid cannot serve as a
1: punishment. Yeah, that seems right so far. Okay, claim number six. To be a desire is to be a representational capacity contributing to a reward or punishment signal.
0: Uh Aha, yep, here is where he's going to define desire in terms of reward and punishment. And here is where we are supposed to enter into a huge discussion, bringing in all sorts of conceptual (laughs) analysis, examining how we intuitively apply our concepts Uh to a range of bizarre scenarios in order to show that the best super dictionary definition of the term either does or does not fit this Uh claim. In fact, to be honest, in the original script for this episode, I wrote about 10 minutes of material where we did just that. And now it's gone. Oh, good. I agree that a reward system exists. There are certain things which we've grown accustomed to calling rewards and punishments that trigger changes in a person's dispositions to behave. I agree that rewards are generally wanted and punishments are generally unwanted. I'm not inclined to say that a desire has to be a part of the reward learning system. I'm willing to say that a creature that doesn't even have a reward learning system can still have desires... But we do have a reward learning system where things promote or inhibit dispositions to act. These rewards and punishments that trigger changes in dispositions exist, and Schroeder can call them desires and aversions if he wants to.
1: So no substantive disagreement then?
0: Not really. Not if Schroeder is willing to admit that a motivational state does not have to be a part of the reward learning system. If so, we seem to just be using different definitions for the word desire.
1: Okay, I suspect that you will have the same reaction to claim seven. Claim number seven, to be a desire is to be a representational capacity contributing to a certainly mathematically describable form of learning.
0: Does he actually say certainly mathematically describable form of learning? Um, yes. Oh, well, I think he means that the mathematical description is certain or fixed. But I don't think we need to worry about that
1: detail. Yeah, that was a little confusing to me too, but okay, good.
0: Now, if we replace the symbol with the substance, I see no reason to reject the claim that our reward learning system involves some, quote, representational capacity contributing to a certainly mathematically describable form of learning. I'd not give it the name desire, but we're not going to argue about definitions, only about what is real, and this representational capacity is real. For me, talking about motivational states, all I need in order to suggest that you have an aversion to heights, for example, is your reluctance to choose to approach a ledge. Again, motivational states do not require a reward learning system, but I don't think that Schroeder would disagree with that. So, no disagreement in substance.
1: And claim number eight... Desires are realized in human beings and other animals like us by the biological reward system, centered around the dopamine-releasing neurons of the SNPC and VTA. Um, okay... What's that? (laughs) Right, so there are some neurons in these two parts of the brain called the substantia nigra pars compacta and the ventral tegmental area that release the chemical dopamine to other structures in the brain like the striatum and the prefrontal cortex. Uh, For our purposes right now, it's not important to know where those parts of the brain are, but it is important to understand what the dopamine does when it is released. Dopamine changes the sensitivity of certain neurons to future stimulation. In ways that change our dispositions to act.
0: Okay, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I don't have any reason to disagree with any of those things. The only difference is that I'd apply the term desire to these dispositions to
1: act that are being changed, and not to the rewards and punishments that are causing those changes. Okay, let's move on to Schroeder's claim nine. Claim number nine, desiring that P is what makes it possible for people to learn certain sorts of habits and to have certain sorts of modifications to their sensory capacities and probably what makes it possible for them to undergo other less well-studied long-term psychological changes.
0: Okay, one of the things that I notice is that Schroeder and I seem to be attaching the word desire to different ends of the reward learning system. Mm -hmm. Schroeder wants to apply the term desire to these agents of change, the things that cause differences in our dispositional states. I typically attach the word desire to the things that are changed, the dispositional motivational states that the agents of change can affect. Mm -hmm. We're not disagreeing over the fact that these agents of change exist, nor do we disagree over the fact that there are things that these agents of change act upon and, well, change. So there's still no significant disagreement over the facts. I'm going to have to add that the things acted upon by these agents of change in the reward learning system also provide the rewards and punishments. It's not a straight line from reward to desire. It's a feedback loop, which is where we get Schroeder's claim that something has to be wanted to serve as a reward and unwanted to serve as a punishment.
1: Okay. Schroeder's claim number 10. Pleasure and displeasure are representations of net positive and negative, respectively, change relative to expectations in desire satisfaction.
0: Um, On this one, I don't know. Schroeder's saying that pleasure itself is the measure of the positive difference between expected rewards and actual rewards, and displeasure is the measure of the negative difference between the two. I saw the evidence that supported Schroeder's claim that only unexpected results have an effect on learning, and I've accepted that. I don't see the evidence to support this claim, however. Schroeder's own book offers anecdotal evidence supporting this claim, but I haven't found anything resembling a controlled scientific experiment that draws this conclusion. I'm not saying that I disagree. I'm saying I don't know. But as it turns out, it won't affect these in one way or the other, so it's not going to be important to our project.
1: Right. Also, I would say that the very recent evidence we presented in the last episode about how wanting and liking are encoded by slightly divergent neural pathways in the brain may suggest that Schroeder's claim here is false, but I'm not sure. Anyway, let's go on to claim 11. Claim number 11. People are typically moved to action or inhibited from acting because there is something they want to achieve or avoid, and they see a way of achieving or avoiding it.
0: Well, yeah. Actually, I would say always motivated to act by desire or aversion. But again, Schroeder probably doesn't want to say always because an agent of change and learning need not always motivate an agent to act. Mm -hmm. And I would agree with what Schroeder says about these agents of change. Mm -hmm. Again, we're just using the word desire a bit differently. But our agreement or disagreement on matters of fact becomes clear when we replace the symbol desire with the substance of what each of us is talking about. For Schroeder, it's the agents of change and reward-based learning. For me, it's
1: the dispositions to act that are changed by those
0: reward signals.
1: Good. Claim number 12. Desires can cause one to form prior intentions and cause one to try.
0: Well, that's true. Schroeder says that desires can cause one to perform prior intentions. I've already said that there is an overlap between what Schroeder calls desires and what I call desires. Mm -hmm. The dispositional states acted on by rewards and punishments also serve as rewards and punishments. So, yeah, because of this overlap, desires in both senses can cause one to form prior
1: intentions. Okay, next. Claim number 13. Desires are not the only causes of goal-directed movement, but of all the pro-attitudes, they are the most fundamental causes.
0: Okay, again, we have to keep in mind that Schroeder is saying that the agents of change and reward learning system are not the only causes, but are the most fundamental causes of goal-directed movement. I would say that desires are always the cause of goal-directed movement because that's how I'm using the term desire, to name those things that direct movement. However, I do not disagree with what Schroeder says about the most fundamental causes of goal-directed movement being found in those agents
1: of change. Okay, let's move on to Schroeder's 14th claim. Claim number 14, a human being with no desires is incapable of normal, goal-directed movement.
0: Well, I'd accept this, of course. The way I use the term desire, there is no motivation without desire. Schroeder is saying that there's no normal, goal-directed movement without these
1: agents of change. I'm not sure about that, but it's not going to be important. And claim number 15, moral thinking has no special power to move us except insofar as we have desires regarding morality. Yep, that one's true. Claim number 16, there are no fleeting desires.
0: You know, my whole approach to Schroeder's claims changed once we cleared up the part about definitions two episodes ago. When I first wrote this episode, I looked at something like claim 16 and took the word desires to have its on-the-street sense. And asked if it would make sense, given the way people would usually use the term. Now, the first thing I do is remind myself, okay, we're talking about Schroederian desires, which are the agents of change in reward learning system. Mm-hmm. This means that he's saying that there are no fleeting agents of change in a reward learning system. Is this true or false? Right. I don't see why it has to be true of Schroederian desires. I see no reason to think that a brain structure that instantiates a particular reward can't come into being for a day or a week and then disappear again. It doesn't seem impossible, though it may be unlikely. Anyway, then I ask myself whether the same statement is true using the concept of desires defined in my way as motivational states. Can there be fleeting motivational state desires? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that seems possible as well. Why can't the brain structure for a certain motivational state come into existence and then disappear again? The brain's always changing. That's how we store facts and memories. Learning itself requires changes to the brain. In this constantly changing brain, it seems possible, though certainly not common, for a particular motivational reason to come into existence, then fade away rather quickly.
1: But Alonzo, one of the important facts about desirism is that desires are persistent entities. The desires that you have that will be responsible for your choices in a given situation are desires that will stick with you across a range of circumstances. And this persistence is important in knowing which desires to promote and which to inhibit.
0: Oh, certainly. Generally, desires are persistent. They tend to stick around for a long time. But this doesn't mean that fleeting desires are impossible, only that they're not the norm for desires.
1: Okay, that's it then. That was Schroeder's last claim. It seems that there's not much disagreement between you and Schroeder on the facts. It's mostly just that you're using certain words to mean slightly different things.
0: Right. I think I disagree with some minor issues about trying and the possibility of fleeting desires, both as agents of change or motivational states, but nothing significant. Now, I could go into 60 minutes of conceptual analysis to show that Schroeder's use of the word desire does not fit our best superdictionary definition of the term. But
1: you're not going to do that, right? Uh, But I'm not going to. Good. (laughs) Now, in our next episode, you want to discuss good-based theories of desire. These are theories that say that for an agent to desire something is for that agent to believe that it is good.
0: Yeah, it's something I hear a lot, usually from people who are trying to save the idea of some sort of intrinsic value. But that'll be for next time.
1: Okay, see you next time.